you know, when I went into this one, I was like, God, please don't let this be another lamentation. Please don't let this be another lamentation. Because, as I think I made pretty clear, I did not expect Move Along Home to be lamentation status. It's okay it wasn't, as you can obviously see. I mean, you, you see the title up there up top, so before I even say anything, you know whether this is a lamentation or not. I never know until I sit down and start recording. That's pretty much the moment I fully decide. Um, but I remember this episode really badly. And it's one of those things where, now that I'm going back through with analysis mode on, I can say exactly why. It's the Rumpelstiltskin character. No, seriously. The actor isn't good. He has way too much screen time for effectively serving no purpose. I'll talk about that in a bit. And he comes across as irritating. So, uh, yeah. Before we get into the episode proper, I want to talk about the script. So, the original idea was from Michael Piller. And... Overall, I would call Michael Piller a pretty big net positive impact on Star Trek as a franchise. He, but it makes me sad that most of the times I have to bring him up is when he does something that I don't agree with or find to be a negative, like Star Trek Insurrection, for example, a movie that some people find to be the worst Star Trek movie. I, I don't personally, but, I mean, I can see where they're coming from, and yeah, right? So... What is the issue here with Michael Piller? Well, the issue is Michael Piller is what I like to call, call excuse me, a screw-it-I-want-to-do-this-concept kind of a writer. Now, that can be a very good thing, especially properly tempered, because that kind of a person, which I don't get to talk about too often, I have seen this kind of writer in, in many times, but I don't, I don't really get to talk about this that often, is the kind of person who says, I really want to do a story about such and such. Maybe it's an allegory for a real-life issue. Maybe it's a discussion or an examination of something like uh, prejudice or um, food or cultural uh, assimilation. You know, something that may not be a hot-button issue, but nevertheless is the kind of thing that you just want to talk about. Or maybe even to do a high-concept thing, as I've talked about before, the kind of thing that you can't actually see in real life that can only exist in fiction. He's very much that kind of a writer. And so it's kind of obvious to see why we've had so much good Star Trek come out of this person. Because Michael Piller likes to say, I want to do this, and he does it. Problem is, sometimes he wants to do this, and, well, sometimes you hit the ball, and sometimes you whiff, right? So here his thing was, I really want to do an episode about high imagination and examination of what that means for us. Now, in this very episode, that is a bit of a hit-or-miss concept, we do get some insight into several of our characters as a result of their imaginations literally walking around on camera. And then sometimes we don't. And another problem, which I'll go ahead and talk about now, because I have nothing else to say about it. I have a phrase which, to my knowledge, I'm the only one who really uses this, as a regular phrase. I call it the, the dilemma of the week, right? You know, oh no, the station's under attack. Oh no, the ship's under attack. Oh god, shaking, shields down. You know, and there's, there's no actual drama there. It's just kind of happening. The dilemma of the week in this episode is boring. 
And that's probably my biggest complaint about this episode, bar none, having gone through with analysis mode. The, the, the dilemma of the week, the big rift thing, it's kind of neat that they tie it into the main theme. So it's not a complete A-plot, B-plot segregation problem. It is something they are literally imagining, and thus, as it gets worse, they imagine it to get worse, right? You know what that's like. How many times have you, let me use something from my own personal experience, tried to start a car, and it starts to start, and you're, you're hopeful, but if you're being honest with yourself, you're also afraid, because what you're imagining is the sound of that car dying. Now, obviously, in real life, that doesn't really have an effect on anything, but imagine if it did. Because I bet a lot of you know that kind of feeling, too. So, you know, that holding that holding the breath, okay, maybe maybe it sealed the rift. No, it didn't. Because that's what you're imagining. <laughs> but there's huge sections of this episode, and I've talked about this problem before uh, for me as, a, as an analyzer, as a ruminator, where I'm just sitting here watching the episode, and I haven't written anything down for like 5, 10, 15 minutes, because it's just... Oh, no, and the rift, and we need to deal with the rift and exploding. Oh, God, we need to evacuate this area, and there's this... Oh, excuse me, shocker, I'm even yawning while talking about it. It just wasn't engaging. There was nothing there. It's like, okay, and I have nothing to say about it. So that's it. Moving on. I do like the logical extension of the Hollow Suite as being, like, a family-friendly thing, but I have to bring something up. I really do. And that is the fact that uh, Odo, when he saw Jake going up to the Hollow Suites, automatically said, Whoa, that's not cool. Now, the reason he said that is he automatically assumes Jake was going up there for sexy times. To have sex with some kind of holographic girls. Okay? We're just going to talk about this bluntly and openly. Because we have to, because it comes up several times in DS9. I don't particularly want to, but that is my job. So... He assumes, naturally and automatically, that the only possible reason Jake could be going up there would be to go have sex. Now, that's, that's relevant. Because it kind of showcases what those hollow suites were used for during the primary function. Now I want you to think about how things were four or five months ago, or a year ago, when Quark was set up here and had those hollow suites running, and it was during the Cardassian occupation. And that was such a commonplace, ordinary thing that the automatic presumption from someone as logical and long-term-minded as Odo is that the only reason you would ever go up to a holosuite would be to have sex. Bonus thought. How many of those people going up there do you think were Cardassians or Bajorans? No judgment here, by the way. Uh... There's a lot that could actually be said about this topic, and I'm not going to really discuss this here because the reality of the Bajoran occupation isn't really brought up in this episode, and there are other times I can talk about that. But, I mean, horrible oppressed regime having a few brief minutes of some kind of escapism. There's really no other word for it. And the funny thing is that could apply equally to the Cardassians and the Bajorans. As this series will eventually grow into showing... Not every Cardassian was particularly happy with the occupation. So, and of course the Bajorans weren't. So you could see how this would be kind of a logical extension. Now that we brought that up, let's talk about something lighter. The fact that he's now expanding into basically turning the holosuites into a standard holodeck 
is very logical for the same reason the holodeck has existed in every Star Trek since TNG, even Enterprise. Although I don't know if it's in Discovery. I still haven't had time to watch that show. But regardless, it has been in every other Star Trek up till now, including Enterprise. Uh, so it makes sense. There are, and, and as I discussed over on TNG, there's a lot of really good ideas and really good real-life reasons to have a holodeck on your show. And they will do some stuff with that holodeck. So... It's not a complete waste or anything like that. So, woo, I'm with that. But from an in-universe perspective, it's also interesting because he talks about this as a new source of revenue, which is logical. But then I find myself wondering, how many Starfleet personnel are going to be using that basically for free? I mean, you're not going to tell me that Jake, Cisco, a son of a Federation commander, is going to have anything to barter his time in the holosuite with. Anyways, then we see that Julian is pathetic. Man, isn't that funny how pathetic he is? Let's all point at the freaking laugh. Ha ha ha! I don't have much else to add to that. I do have one thing to add. This episode has a 6 minute and 33 second teaser. As I said, I've kind of been pointing that out as we go through because... It really is fascinating going back to the beginnings of DS9 and TNG and seeing how differently they viewed the very concept of, a, of the cold open, is actually what it's called, and it's the official term for it, but what they, how they perceive the, and use the teaser as a concept. Here, for, and, and DS9's done this a lot, a little bit of stuff, you know, just kind of a little bit of character stuff, a little bit of world building, and one little bit of foreshadowing, because Jake going up there is going to eventually lead to him coming back with Buck Bakai, right? And then we have a little bit of thing with Julian, and then we have a little bit of thing, and then, and oh my god, da 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 right? And then that's the end of the teaser, we, as we finally establish the main plot of the episode. I kind of like that, actually, the overall approach. I mean, a quick teaser, I've praised quick teasers a lot. A really quick, punchy, powerful teaser can be very effective. Uh, I can think of two right off the top of my head that are fantastic quick teasers. Faces, over on Voyager, and... I can't remember the name of the episode, but it's the one with the, the hologram who goes insane and starts killing people. Very quick, short teasers, but just immediately catch your attention. Holy crap. You know, there, there's other good ones, but there's nothing wrong with a long teaser as long as it does something with all of its runtime. We see some banter between Odo and Quark. Good stuff, character stuff. We see the setting-building thing about the Suites I just mentioned. We see the foreshadowing with Jake going up to play baseball. We see the... Uh, <laughs> such as it is the character dynamic between Julia and Dex, and then we see O'Brien with his daughter, So, and then establishing the episode. So we do see plenty of decent stuff here. It's not like they're misusing it or padding it. We'll see how much that continues in the future. Now, I have my note here that says, Rumpelstiltskin is actively irritating and not well acted. I already comment on that, but I really want to hammer this point in, because... This is something that I think was a huge misstep, and I understand completely why. We have the Dax fantasy, whatever you want to call it, the Dax imagination, which we'll talk about in a minute, the the Buck Bakai imagination, which we'll talk about in a minute, and we see a little bit of other imaginations and their insight into the characters that they have them, like Odo's imagination about Quark and how he's perfectly in control of his imagination was a nice touch, and showcases the kind of mental self-control Odo usually has. Quark being with his girls 
it pretty much showcases the kind of mentality Quark has. And there's another little tidbit, which I'll talk about separately, because it's a separate issue. But what's the point of Rumpelstiltskin? And I'll go ahead and answer the question for you. There is no point. He incites basically nothing into O'Brien as a character. He barely functions any story purpose at all. In fact, the only story function that Rumpelstiltskin serves, I've actually already told you, with regards to the rift. That whole turning the key, oh god, is it going to work thing? Because that's exactly how O'Brien approaches Rumpelstiltskin. Oh god, oh god, is this... Is this... I mean... Because the whole point is that he's actually afraid of this guy, but is basically embarrassed or insulted or ashamed of that fear and therefore denies it. Right? But that's it. That's not really saying anything about O'Brien. You could do that for basically any character in any fiction ever, and probably most real-life people, and the reaction would still be the generally same thing. So there's nothing there. Why is that? Because this was the third draft of this particular part of the story. If you watch at the beginning of the episode, right after the cold open, right after the teasers and the whole da-da-da-da, awesome intro plays, almost every episode of Star Trek, this is true for TNG, Voyager, and DS9, I don't remember for Enterprise off the top of my head, they do a few credits as the episode proper begins. Usually, like, episode title, and then, like, directed by, guest stars, and teleplay, and script story idea, right? Now, the reason those are there is because of union rules. That's why it's such a common thing in Star Trek. They kind of have to follow the rules. But one thing you can tend to notice, one thing that's usually an insight into it, is how many names you see on that script or telepay credit. Usually it's one person. Often it's two people. Very rarely it will be three or four, or just a whole mess. I think it's actually six total for this one. I forget off the top of my head. Forgive me. But it's quite a few. And that's almost always a bad sign. It means everyone's had to put their pen into the ink well, and generally that just means a lot of stories that disagree with each other. I've talked many times across many works of fiction, including the recent uh, Assassin's Creed Origins, about the problems with having different writing teams and how much that can affect a fictional work and its enjoyment. So, the original idea was it was going to be a leprechaun. They basically already finished the script. As in, the whole teleplay, the actual, the thing that's printed out and given to the actors. Then Colmini got a hold of it and said, nope. Now this is interesting, because I, of course, uh, have, have un unintentionally stepped on toes when it comes to Irish stereotypes in the past. It, in my case, it was uh, mis mixing up Ireland and Scotland, because I, I made a mistake geographically once, and I had some people basically bite my head off for that. Um, I understand why, now, at the time I didn't. But I bring this up because this is basically exactly what they went through with regards to the show. Mr. Meany basically said, what the crap, no. And he basically told them, this is a, a long-standing Irish pro uh, stereotype. We've already been fighting against Irish stereotypes for forever. Cold Meany himself has actually personally experienced Irish uh, stereotypes over on TNG... And we'll talk about that at some point. I haven't gotten to that episode yet, so it's, it's not going to be this month. But at some point, we'll get to that episode as well. So he put his foot down. He said no. And he was actually pretty upset about this by all accounts. And everyone was just kind of confused. Not in a, oh, what's your problem? More of a, oh, crap, I didn't realize this was a problem. Which is why I relate my earlier problem uh, with regards to that. Uh, I, by the way, the Scotland-Ireland thing, that was when I was pretty young. I should clarify that. 
I wasn't as versed in history back then as I am now. Just a little bit of backstory. Anyways, so they were like, okay, uh, what do we do now? We gotta have something. And again, the rest of the script was basically written. So they go casting around, and they come up with this second idea, which almost immediately fell flat. And they're like, okay, hang on, hang on. Why don't we go back to board? Let's, let's just go with the, the old folktale thing. Uh, Rumpelstiltskin. There we go. Boo. We'll do Rumpelstiltskin. Perfect. But the whole point of the original story was to use this imagination to offer insight into the character, just like all the other imaginations do. That's why they chose the Leprechaun. They were going to use it, and I don't know specifics, they are going to use it as an insight into O'Brien as a person. Rumpelstiltskin is not a Leprechaun. He's basically a completely separate everything. And, of course, they didn't know how to turn that into an insight into his character. But they were already running way up on the deadline. Remember, they should have already started filming by the time they're doing these rewrites. So they're like, uh, here. So Rumpelstiltskin is there and serves no real purpose. It's really a shame, because you notice how much screen time he gets compared to the other imaginations? I have a feeling that was basically supposed to be the main gist of the story. Not that I begrudge uh, Colmini about this. By the way, I've heard some people uh, complain about the way I pronounce that. And Lord knows I'm not great with pronunciations, but I've actually heard several people say Colmini in real life. So that's where I'm getting that from. I'm not just mispronouncing it because I'm an idiot in this particular case. Anyways, so... Let's talk, a uh, quick little aside, just one tiny little thing that I do like. Uh, O'Brien calls Cisco and says, I need you in my, my ready room, or in my quarters right away. Now, this is a really minor p touch, but it just kind of shows how some of the smaller things tend to work out better in DS9. Because in a lot of other shows, especially Star Trek, what the response would be would be, what's the problem? And then the reaction to that would be, I don't know, you have to see for yourself. You know, you gotta come take a look at this cliche, right? Instead, Cisco says, I'm on my way. And boom, he gets up and he starts walking over there immediately. I like that. Because, in my opinion, that's how that should be. If you're called down by someone who says you need to get here right away, especially in a military freaking organization, or, if you don't think that Starfleet is military, in an organization which has a distinct command structure and, and other aspects of functionality to it, you don't just say, huh, I wonder what his problem is. No, you go, right? I like that. Anyways, anyways. So, before I talk about the individuals, I want to talk about how many people are playing Davo and winning. Do you think, as ever, I love to hear your guys' thoughts, do you think this is an example of not thinking it through writing or very much thinking it through writing? Now I know what you're saying. What's the relevance? Well, a lot of the people are having their imaginations affect reality. And by the time that has become known, lots of people are gambling tons of money and winning on the Dabo table. I want to make that clear, okay? Because this is different from, to use an example, having an imagination of playing a video game and having it be awesome, right? Like having a great time and accomplishing all these great feats or whatever. That's different because, as we've discussed, Dabo is roulette. And the episode makes it clear these people are not just playing Dabo and having fun. They are playing Dabo to win. There are several visual cues that make it clear the imagination is not in having the good time. The imagination is in winning the money. 
and there are Starfleet personnel involved in that. They make it pretty clear about that. So again, do you think that was just something they threw in, or that they thought out very carefully? Because it could be conceived that they just had a few extras and they tossed some in a Bajoran uniform and some in a Starfleet uniform and said, yeah, you just go and act like you're super happy about all this winnings. We'll have this guy toss a bag of money to you. You need to hand all these bars of latinum over to this other guy. You know, all that stuff. They could have just done something like that. Or this could be a little bit of an insight into some Starfleet personnel's imaginations that they actually want things like wealth. Because... As I've actually made the point before, on this show, in this very rumination series, wealth is not necessarily a bad thing. It's when you take it too far that money becomes a problem. I've said this so many times. You know, some people, um, and, I, and I'm not uh, calling anyone out on this because I wasn't making this clear in the older days, but some people used to think that I was anti-corporation or anti-economics, which is very much not the true. I, I mean, I'm I, not the true, did I just say that? Which is very much not true because I'm very much into economics as a concept, as the idea of it, and, I, and something I've studied since I was literally a kid, since I was one digit old. But what I am against is greed, avarice, taking it too far, pushing the envelope to the point where you have a net negative scenario. Is it not feasible to perceive then that some Starfleet personnel's imagination is that they want wealth because of what they can get with wealth? That is what money is, after all, as I feel like I discussed just last week, actually, with regards to uh, the whole transaction thing with uh, with Nog and, and, and uh Jake, God, I can, I keep, keep calling, wanted to call him Cisco, Cisco Junior. You know, with that thing, right? Money is a val, it was is a universally valued good that can be exchanged for things you actually want or services you want or need, right? Simple. And I kind of like that because we do know that DS Nine is a major trade hub. And so it's not out of bounds that some Starfleet personnel would want to trade for things. Now, I know what you're going to say. Well, why not just replicate it? Two answers to that. First of all, and I, I'm struggling to come up with a proper analogy in real life, so forgive me, but you can't tell me that some people wouldn't prefer something that was handcrafted over something that was replicated, even knowing that there's no real difference. Even if you were able to take it and perfectly replicate it, there's going to be a value of sentiment in the handcrafted thing. DS9 will actually cover this regarding food later on in its run. I mean, there are plenty of people in real life who value certain things more than other things that are either the same or better because of some sentimental attachment or because of some personal preference or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as you're not elitist dick about it. So again, to me, the idea of Starfleet personnel wanting things crafted by the Bajorans and, being, and having money to pay for them as something they would desire makes perfect sense to me. I don't see a problem with that. That being said, I'm probably giving the, the episode way too much credit. Oh, I'm sorry, I had a second point to make there, excuse me. Um, so, you know, trading for, for existing goods, sentimental value, etc., right? But the second thing to be brought up here is that you can't tell me that most Starfleet personnel aren't overall leaning towards the good side of the scale. I mean, there are plenty of Starfleet individuals who are morally gray, and there are plenty who are dicks. Admiral Necheyev comes to mind immediately. But for the overall aggregate, we tend to see Starfleet as a generally positive organization. And I'm, I'm comfortable accepting that and embracing that. 
Why is this relevant? Well, one thing that I could see them wanting to do is to benefit and and you know be a part of Bajoran trade for the Bajorans' sake, not for their sake. Yeah? Because the idea here is they are basically producing a want that can then be filled by, by a commercial means. And that will lead to people having jobs, being able to produce or craft or trade, and being able to get something out of it that they will then be able to use to help further their people. You know, some kind of net benefit. You can't tell me at least someone hasn't thought of that. But again, to, to finish my earlier thoughts, I'm probably giving this episode way too much credit. So let's move on to my next point. Let's talk about, uh, gosh, I'm looking at my lines here. Let's talk about Kira really quick. I like Kira's scene a lot. Kira's scene can be, it can be interpreted in two ways which are not mutually exclusive that, I, that I've heard, that I've heard people talk about. One is that she is terrified of the idea of failure, that she is the kind of person who imagines the worst case scenario. That she takes her job and her duty and her responsibilities very seriously. To the point where the idea of failure is terrifying to her. Hence, the pylon has already blown up and people are already dying, is what she's imagining as she's, as she's on her way up there. Make sense? The other way to take that is that she's seen something like that before. That sometime in her life she has seen a person on fire running towards her, screaming in terror and pain. And again, not mutually exclusive. It's a very brief scene, and they don't analyze it, but again, it does, gives a, does give us some insight into her character, which I find interesting. Uh, is this it? Hang on, I'm looking at my notes here. Mm -hmm. let's, let's talk about the character stuff, finally. So, I already kind of discussed O'Brien. Nothing new to add there. Let's talk about Cisco. So, Cisco, obviously... How many of you out there like baseball? Obviously, I now. <laughs> I'm so used to streaming. I can't get a response in 30 seconds. I'm going to have to wait like a couple months to hear your guys' response. But I imagine several of you like baseball. And, of course, nothing wrong with it. I used to love playing baseball. And I did used to enjoy watching some baseball matches back in San Francisco uh, with my dad. So, I, the reason I bring that up is that baseball has been argued to be one of the slower-paced sports out there. And I tend to agree with that perspective. I think that baseball is not quite as, I guess, adrenaline-pumping as, say, football or, uh, you know, American football or basketball or hockey or stuff like that. Now, that's not an insult. I want to make that clear. It just has a far more deliberate pace to it in fact, I can make the same comparison between American football and football. American football, for all its energy and violence, is very lurchy in its overall pace. You know, all right, hang on, let's check the thing. We've called the timeout. Let's readjust. Okay, right. Whereas football, uh, soccer, for some of you, uh, is the kind of thing that's just and it only stops if something really bad happens. Blood on the field lightning storm, you know, stuff like that. So, there's nothing wrong with having a different pace or a different approach to a sport. That's not the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm trying to make is that baseball is an excellent insight into Cisco's character. Because Cisco is the kind of person who is that patient, who doesn't mind earning it, 
who doesn't mind taking his time to build up something long-term. And that's very appropriate for someone in this situation, someone in command of a station who is, which is nearby a developing world. Now, I know the Bajorans have been around for forever, but thanks to the occupation, for all intents and purposes, they're at the point now of developing infrastructure to join the galactic community. I keep saying that phrase, but it keeps being true. They need someone like Cisco here. So he's already got that mindset, and we've already even seen this in Emissary. And he derives a degree of enjoyment from that kind of a thing. If we were to use the old MMO archetypes for players who play MMOs, he would be the builder, the kind of person who wants to really slowly establish himself and have some kind of long-term investment. Which brings me to my second point. He loves competition. I think this is probably the best insight into Cisco's character right here. He, again, we already covered this in Emissary, but Cisco is a very aggressive and ambitious person. He's the kind of person who thrives on things like rivalries, or engagements or challenges. Now, in another society, he would probably be a warlord, a conquering force, a general, or even one of the greatest champions of an arena, something like that. Here, though, he was born in this era, in, 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 the, in the, the TNG era, you know, the, the, the golden new age that I've talked about over on TNG. He was born into a society that doesn't really value any of those kind of things. But he is still that kind of person. And yet he has found his own outlet to it. Because he does love competing. He does love challenging himself. And that's the way that baseball can show an insight into him. Good stuff. Good stuff. So before I talk about Bashir, I want to talk about the baseball. I actually meant to mention that. I, 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 it's, it's part of Cisco's character. It's one of the reasons why that baseball is going to be such a relevant part of his character and of another character as well, we'll get to that eventually, and why it will maintain, be maintained as a fixture on his desk for several more seasons. That's going to be a regular feature there for a long time. And it's probably the only really long-term lasting effect of this episode of any relevance. And I like that. Because, again, that baseball is the best way to summarize Cisco's character. Anyways, anyways, so... Uh, I also want to stretch my back a little bit and check my notes. Um, is there anything else before I talk about the other thing? Nope. All right, so time to bring the spoiler box in here, uh, or give the spoiler warning. I guess I don't actually have a spoiler box. I'll think about adding one. Depends on how often this comes up. Uh, right now, this is like the second time ever, so... Eh. Nevertheless, this is your spoiler warning for those of you who have never seen this show before and don't want to be spoiled. Spoiler, spoiler. All right, that's enough warning. Let's talk about Bashir. Because I can't talk about Bashir at all without spoiling, and that's why I wanted to put this here. So, first of all, let's go ahead... I might have to bring the controversy box down here, too. Let's go ahead and talk about Bashir's fantasy, which is the submissive, desiring uh, Dax. Judzia Dax. Now, let me also add one thing really quick, because this is this is 2018, and people are right now about this particular issue, so it is worth noting that for all of the crap that could be flung at this episode, Terry Farrell herself actually really enjoyed playing both roles in this. It was a nice chance for her to actually stretch as an actress. Remember, she was a fairly new actress when all of this was starting, and so you know the ability to do this was not something she viewed as sexist or horrible, 
It was just another role for her to play. It is also worth noting that that viewing her as some kind of submissive sex toy thing is actually, I would say, doing this episode a disservice. And I mean that with total sincerity. Because that's how it, it perceives it first. He wants someone submissive who wants him. And yet, as the episode goes on, that kind of becomes less and less true as it is being perceived. And in fact, I would say probably the most telling moment is when they, they see that the explosion is about to happen, and she just says, hold me, and he automatically does so. Given what we find out later about Julian Bashir, I don't think he wants someone submissive. I think he wants someone to take care of. And I absolutely think he wants someone who wants him. This is one of those interesting aspects that kind of actually fits almost seamlessly with, his, with what we eventually learn about him being genetically enhanced. Because Julian Bashir is probably the kind of person who would be really good at getting any given woman he wanted to, but that's not what he wants. He doesn't want to manipulate or alter himself or just basically overwhelm someone with his talents or abilities in order to get them to like them. Like him, excuse me. He wants them to like him. I know it sounds like a cliché, but he wants someone who actually likes him, right? Hence this portrayal, hence this perspective. It is also worthy of note that when she first shows up in his bed, and I think this is very telling, he's up and he's like, oh god, nope, nope, not real, hang on, hang on, this feels too real. What's his first gut reaction? Something's wrong. Pulls out his tricorder. By the way, I love the idea that he has his tricorder right next to his bed. I can actually see that. I don't think that's a plot hole. I, I think I can actually see that. But he pulls out his tricorder, like, hang on, something wrong with you? No, okay, something wrong with me. There's got to be something wrong with me. There's got to be something wrong, oh God. That's his knee-jerk reaction. I like that. Because the idea there is that he does not want to take advantage. And he, again, doesn't actually want a doll or a toy. He wants a person who wants him the person. And that is one of the reasons why he so consistently and regularly rebuffs her advances the entire episode. To the point where sometimes he even flinches away from her touch. Now, of course, at the time that was not intended. At the time, he was not genetically enhanced. He was just the bumbling doctor. But... At the time, this is still a way to show an insight into his character for the same reasons I just mentioned. The idea that he wants someone who he can laugh with. He wants someone who actually enjoys him for whom he is. He wants someone There's a line that the fake Dax says, which I think find very telling. It's okay, this is paraphrased, it's okay, I know I'll be safe. I'm in the hands of the best doctor in the galaxy. I think that line is very telling on what Julian Bashir really wants. And again, you'll notice how this kind of perfectly fits either the young noob or the genetically enhanced noob. You know, both perspectives fit here rather nicely. I also want to add... Uh, one little tidbit about this, and I forgive me for putting it here, but whatever. The real Dax has a line, which I wrote down. We all have fantasies and dreams that should be kept private, that are not, you know, and she even apologized. I feel like we're intruding on you. 
I like that. Now, of course, then they turn that into a joke as she then kind of is like, hey, but that's absolutely true. No, seriously. I'm going to ask you bluntly how many private fantasies you have ever had. Don't tell me. I don't actually want to know. And you should not share it on the Internet because the Internet's a horrible place. But how many private fantasies, this is a question for you to answer in yourself, how many private fantasies have you had that you don't actually want, but you had those thoughts? And how embarrassed would you be if other people found out about that? We've actually even covered this already in Voyager with the Doctor's longings for Seven, right? How humiliating would it be if that came out? Because then people would all look at you weird like, oh, that's what you really want? Well, no. I've often made the distinction uh, in fiction and in real life between fantasizing about something and actually wanting something. There is a gulf of difference between the two. And it's worth noting that based on how our minds work and our limited understanding thereof, there are plenty of times where random thoughts or random emotions will flash through us that we will then move on from and ignore. And again, Voyager covered this concept with Belana Taurus and the, the empath planet, right? You remember that one? It doesn't mean Belana Taurus actually wants to go up and beat the crap out of someone. It's just a flash of anger, and that's it. That's the difference between a fantasy and a desire. And that's why I like to distinguish that. There are plenty of things that I have fantasized about. You know, some of them about Miss Gates McFadden. I'll admit that. You know, I'll go ahead and embarrass myself on camera. I have had fantasies about Gates McFadden, but in reality land, no, I, I don't actually want that. I, I have no real desire for that. Make sense? And I bet a lot of you understand that feeling, because if someone approached you and offered something of your fantasy in reality, and I want to stress, fantasy, not desire, you probably wouldn't really want it either. Because that's not really what you want, is it? So, I just wanted to comment on that, because that also kind of helps to give one final layer of insight into all three of our primary characters and their imaginative interactions. I don't think any of them really want what they interact with. It's just a fantasy for them, something that's in the back of their mind, something that is kind of a nice thought, but ultimately, nah. I suppose you could also stretch this to say that applies to the station being threatened thing too, right? <laughs> but I digress. I hope you've enjoyed my discussions and my interruption, and I hope to see you guys next time. <laughs>